This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. at the same time and he had just finished a book and he's like oh after this i i kind of want to get into some barbarian fiction fiction like conan and i was like i can just give you some conan stories like i'll just suggest a few sure um my uh my favorite way to digest conan material is the dark horse comics from like the mid 2000s they're good they're really good the carry nord stuff like if if anyone wanted a definitive edition of Conan, I would actually give them that. But this is not the uh, f- fantastic swordsman of and swords. What's the Conan role playing game? Um, fantastic swords and swordsmen of Hyperborea. Something like that, yeah. So, it's not swords and swordsmen, is it? That would be a terrible name. But anyways, welcome to the Save or Die podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Crispy. Astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea. It is sorcerers, okay. Swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea. Hi, I'm Carl. And we actually have a guest with us on this show. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, mystery man? I am Jonathan. I'm Carl's friend, a longtime role player, all that crazy stuff. You speaking uh, a few minutes ago of the early days of the 80s bookstores harkens back to when I first started in this crazy hobby we have. So People often bring up that you could just get, like, Ed Walden books. That was when they got their first D&D box set. Was that like a trip down memory lane, me bringing that up? Oh, definitely. That That's... I picked up the uh, Errol Otis basic box was my first foray into it. I remember looking at it and kind of drooling over it and then running back to my, I think it was my father and saying, dad, they've got this awesome game I'd like to buy. And I went back and they had one copy and another kid had it in his hands and I just watched him like a hawk. Like, (laughs) please God, put that down because I want to buy that. And he eventually did and I got it. So I I always want to find that kid and thank him like you, if it wouldn't have been for you, you know. (laughs) It's a real like jingle all the way, like Sinbad the mailman. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So thank you, mystery kid out there, whoever you are. You you let me buy my first. Dungeons and Dragons box set, and I've been hooked ever since. So, so Walden Borders, they're they're closed. Um, mm-hmm. I think Barnes and Noble is on the way out as well. I actually got all of my original D and D stuff from an independent bookstore that also closed. That's that's a weird thing. I think that people in the OSR are going to have to deal with soon. These like <laughs> this fond memory of like first discovering you know classic D and D or or AD and D. those places now are just discovered gone. Discovered through. It's discovered through a YouTube uh, video. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our television series. You've got TV series. Right. A lot of people are playing it. So that's yeah, community. I wonder if they're like I wonder if Wizards of the Coast is ever gonna do another D D show. Cause I think we're in 
a climate where it could work. I think it's a better format than a movie for a story based in D&D. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, definitely, because, you know, D&D games a lot of times are episodic or serialized. So you can do that with a TV show more so than you can do it with a movie. And there's been talk of another movie in the mix. I don't know how you know, serious it is or how I'm, soon it might happen. But I think like, it's no, pretty that's serious. not what we need. So like, uh, uh, Joe, is it Joe magnet, Mag- Manganello, Maganello, Maganello, uh, from, uh, Spider-Man one flash Thompson, uh, is wait, really? Yeah. He was <laughs> like, everyone's like, Oh, he's from true blood. No, he's, he was, I, I've never he was seen flash true blood, but I've seen Spider-Man yeah. one. Yeah. That guy, is uh, a gigantic D&D nerd. He's also from Pittsburgh. Represent. All right, so let's so. talk a little bit about what we did in gaming. We did that a little bit before the show. Uh, I didn't... I, I tried to play D&D last night, but we hadn't seen each other in a month, and uh, we... <laughs> the, that game was, like, DOA last night, so I'm going to try again yeah. this weekend. Um, kind of continuing on, because I think it's in the last podcast. Uh, I killed one of my player characters because they don't quite know how to search for traps yet and he got hit by a uh, save or die effect uh he's fine you know it's, it's magic it's you know there's a high level cleric who brought him back to life um but now they're trying to beseech the king to build an orphanage for uh the people who are running around with the street gang that they're hunting and uh it was a nice night uh because i actually got to uh to use the birthday present that Carl got me. Previously, I didn't have like um, physical copies, original physical copies of the basic expert set for Moldvay Cook. Um, I have some that I printed off from the PDF I bought through Drive Through RPG DD Classics uh, uh, But Carl was gracious enough to actually send me a copy of uh, the original rules. So thank you for that, Carl. Oh, no problem. Yeah, I'm glad you got them and got to use them. Yeah, that's awesome. What about you, Carl? What what did you do in gaming? Well, since we last talked, I actually uh, gamed for a third time with DM Crafty, uh, Mm. who's just a fantastic game master in the area. Runs a heavily house-ruled basic expert game. Again, at a game store, just anybody could walk up and and play, and we closed the store down. The store was like, we're closing now, you understand, (laughs) and we didn't didn't understand. We were like, wait, we gotta stop. I mean, you didn't have to go home, but you couldn't stay there. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Jonathan, what about you? I've been running a lot of public games. I, I work with a local gaming store trying to uh, foster the community here because we have a lot of eager players, but very, very few ex- experienced players are DMs. Um, I'm running a game every week. It's not technically a B slash X game, but I run it like one. Just mm-hmm. don't tell anyone. That's our secret. <laughs> and uh, we've we've been running through the most recent campaign stuff from uh, the current version of, of Dungeons and Dragons. But we often we have players that drop in and out, and I, I leave my players the decision. I leave it up to my players to make the decision: Do we have uh, continue the campaign, or do we have a one shot? And when I run the one shots, that's when I often interject. A lot of the more uh, classic things, even to the point that I, I did Caverns of Thracia uh, last year, and they liked it so much, we uh, went through the entire adventure. It, it was supposed to be just like a one-night thing, but it turned out to be an ongoing thing. So, But uh, I do that every week, so it's a pretty regular fix, which is nice. That sounds really cool. I've always wanted to take over a game store. Not take over, but 
host a game in a game store, but we have several game stores in the area who do have play space, and I've been in there for, you know, Friday Night Magic or to just shop, and people are doing, you know, outside of Adventure League stuff, they're they're there playing D&D, that's like their space, and I've always wanted to do that, but I, you know, I have a big table, my buddies all have adequate space, so I guess we don't need it to go to a, a public space, but I Maybe someday, if I'm wanting to branch out from my current group and just have a pickup game, it, it's a different environment. That's for sure. You know, I, I've like the game I'm running now. I have a 12 year old young lady who joined the game. Her parents came in the store and said that they have a daughter that wanted to play, learn how to play D and D, and so we stuck her in my game. And mm-hmm. her mom and dad actually joined us as well, so the whole family plays. <laughs> Are you guys but, uh, uh, doing fifth edition? We are. Um, I do 5th edition mainly because it's easy for them to grab it off the shelf. Yes. And there are, when 5th edition first came out and the uh, DMG came out, I did pour over that section of rules on how to basically make 5th edition run like BX. But this isn't a 5th edition podcast. So let's get back to basics with today's topic. The fanzine Back to Basics by Tom. <laughs> Carl, will you edit using the last name over that for me? Wilson. That's my impression of you. All right. Thanks. Tom Wilson is his name. So you may want to take that again. I don't know what you want to do with your life. Ah, it's fine. But We're just going to keep all this in. I assume it's Tom. It's T H O M. It's, yeah, Thom. Like Thom York from Radiohead. <laughs> I, yeah, I have no idea. I did not ask. I I'm should have. Sure Tom. That is a rookie mistake. I first um, encountered Tom Wilson on some of the Facebook trade groups mm-hmm. that I'm always on, buying more stuff than I need and selling <laughs> less stuff than I need to sell. Um, he's collecting, trying to collect a hundred copies of B2, uh, and I have zero collector mentality. But that was just so insane a project to me that I was just like, okay, I support this. That's why. Like, what's? I don't know. I, I was going to run ads here, he wants but now <laughs> we're on this. Now we'll we'll get Patreon stuff in a second. Um, that's weird. Like, I have a copy. You know, like. Well, I mean, to be fair, there are there are really some major differences between some of the printings. That's true. Um, that's very at true. At one point, B two was printed um, with Holmes basic information in it. I think that's actually and, the copy that I physically own, the Holmes, because I got it at the same time that I got my Holmes blue book. So I'm I'm almost positive that it's that. I. Oh, that's... It's still a weird project. Like, I, mean, I don't have any of that. I don't want anything signed by anybody. Because the the moment you add value to something I have is the moment I hawk it and just <laughs> buy a copy that's cheaper. Yeah, that's, you just I turn it off. I don't it. care about your signature. I just don't. Yeah, well, yeah, we've talked about that in the in the past. I don't like. I I have copies of the I series and like you know against the giants and stuff like that. Uh, but that's still play. Sorry, oh, yeah. all if the I listeners. If I had a copy and... of white box D and D, it would be on the table. I mean, I I, I don't want to collect anything. I, I will game with old stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about white box D and D is uh, it's inaccessible at this point to people who actually want to use the rules to play you should buy the pdf copies and print them at home and staple them together <laughs> let's get and on with the show Christmas. uh here listen to vince and glenn t- talk to you about shows and patreon 
Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Want to help support the show? Why not head over to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash WGP. That's patreon.com slash WGP. And help support the network for as little as $1.50 a month. That's right, $1.50 a month goes a long way. Thank you. If AD&D is number one, have we got a podcast for you. On the Roll for Initiative podcast, DMs Vince, Nick, and Matt. Hello, everybody. And <laughs> DM Matt. Hello, everyone. Check out all things related to the game that Gary built. This is basically the module trying to get you to fight things when you shouldn't. Yeah. it's They basically taunt you. They're being playful. Yeah. They're being playful. Yeah. They feature old and new modules, supplements, musings on rules, advice on DMing a game, and occasionally feature new writers and classic creators of all things 1E. And think of it this yeah. way. Number appearing, 2 to 12. 12 demigods hanging out together? Yes, but the green man has nothing underneath him as a classification. Zero. No. Nothing. No. Just he's God of yeah. growth and abundance. We don't need to put down any other classification at all. We'll just give it to the mud man. That's the Roll for Initiative podcast. You can find it on iTunes or at rfipodcast.com. So, you like AD&D 2nd Edition, but no podcast to listen to? Guess what? We got the cure right here. I got a fever. And the only prescription is... The Thaco's Hammer Podcast. You want me to put the hammer down? Join DM's Glenn, Brian, Corey, and Full-On Gamer as they discuss, debate, and review the world of 2nd Edition AD&D. Yes. Go here. Give me a gin. Yeah, that's that's DM Corey ordering drinks. Sorry, sorry, girlfriend's getting gin. Rules, modules, supplements, clones, everything 2E is fair game. Someone lied to you, and there's an opposed role, and oh, they won, so you believe the lie. I know, but I don't, because I, the player, know that they lied to me. But mm -hmm. you, the character, have to act like you take the lie. So listen into a podcast where number two is number one. The Thaco's Hammer Podcast, the best damn second edition ADD podcast ever. You'll find it on iTunes or at Thaco'sHammer.info. Oh man, what quality ads. <laughs> uh, Alright, let's uh let's get into the show proper here. Uh we're gonna be talking about uh Back to Basics, which is a fanzine created by Tom Wilson. I think it's uh, just a little kind of pet project he's doing for fun so it's it's we've basically got the first year it's a quarterly publication um i believe you can get it through drive through um he sells it through drive through as pdfs mm -hmm. um when a new issue comes out at that point you can get a physical copy okay um uh, but once those have gone through i don't know that he does extra print runs well, know I know he has a uh, for info for back issues. He's got in his um, like wanted section. He he does talk about you know contact him to get older episodes. Um, where is the? Oh, okay. Right? So he might do individual prints for people. Yeah. yeah. Um, Throwy Games. Uh, that's important to to say is is his company that he runs. Okay. It is a very small magazine. It is a. Uh, it is a. It's. It's a zine. Like it's a dozen, dozen and a half pages each issue. It's not insubstantial, but it is. You know, it's. It's just a few pages each month. I don't mean that as a criticism of him or of the magazine. Um, I think it's very easy to digest, but mm -hmm. it just sort of like. 
it's hard to really go super in-depth when it's like, oh, this is like a two-page adventure. But he's got, you know, recurring segments each month. He does a product spotlight. He's doing interviews with uh, designers and artists from, you know, the 80s and the, and the classic D&D era. Um, he'll always come up with a, a short adventure, you know, maybe a five or six room dungeon. He has a section um, on monsters earlier in the issue before that segment where he will talk about the homebrew monster that he's going to use in those adventures. He'll do a, a magic item later in later editions. Uh, he starts doing multiple magic items per and there's a comic and a, and a wanted section like a want ad. Um, Carl, what did you think of this product overall? I think uh, one thing that he does really well is he creates a format and sticks with it. Mm -hmm. I like that because it provides expectation upon the reader of what they're going to get in each zine, each issue and what you expect while reading it. I know I'm going to get a couple of monsters and a dungeon crawl um, and some treasure and some some new magic items. items. Yeah. There's also a high quality of the output. His maps look great. The Mm -hmm. art in this looks great. Yeah. I Um, I do want to touch on that. Like uh, the graphic design overall, I think is really good. It's very clean. Um, It's two columns, you know, just justified text. So it's sort of in that newspaper sort of print um the cover artist that he has for for this like zine that i presume he's just putting together in a spare time you know over a three-month period uh is amazing it's an artist named matt ray uh and i don't know that name off the top of my head but uh he like he's a phenomenal artist so kudos to tom for snagging him for this project his covers are fantastic yeah yeah all the all the covers are super phenomenal there's not a lot of interior art there's a map and they're great uh john why don't you give us your your thoughts on the uh the issues I like that he really kept with the the quote unquote zine format, and that all of his art very succinct and easy to read and short. Uh, I really enjoyed that. That can pick it up, read two or three of them in a very short amount of time. Um, mm-hmm. Just a personal thing, I really like that when he does his product reviews, he puts information on the different printings uh, when it was available, and and just kind of gives a little short summary of what was out there at the time. That was nice to see. Yeah, I, I definitely do like how clean it is. Um, I He did a couple product spotlights that I do want to talk about. That's that's one issue. That's one uh, feature he'll always do. Um, it's something Carl and I have actually talked about doing a show on, but we couldn't find a lot of information on. Uh, it is Gavin uh, Norman at uh, Necrotic Gnome Productions who has a product called uh, BX Essentials, which is a... I think they're up to four volumes. I think it's six planned total, which is a reorganization of the BX rules. And we, we've talked about doing a show on those to see, because we were a little confused. We were like, is this a retro clone? Is it, you know, because it, it states that it's restated rules. And I w- wasn't sure oh, yeah. if that meant yeah. it's close, but legally distinct to the... 1981 box set but apparently from what i can glean from his review is that it is actually just a reorganization not um a restating right it's like a table reference more than a rule set Mm -hmm. so i guess we don't have to talk about that product now i still do kind of want to check it out (laughs) i'm interested in it because 
any more refer any more references or resources I can give to my players at the table so that I don't have to pass around and share copies of the book. Um, it's always good in my opinion. Uh, he also talks about in uh, that's so that's in the last or most recent issue, uh, which is issue four. Uh, in issue three, he talks about um, a product that I've also wanted to check out, which is the BX Monster Reference Index by Peter Reagan from Square Hex. Oh yeah, um, that thing looks cool. Yeah, Peter does, Reagan yeah. also used to do Obliate Magazine, which we've re- covered on the show previously, and I'm a a huge fan. If I'm a gigantic. Oubliette Magazine fan. Um, yeah, the, I have some other Square Hex. I have a, a, a notebook that he kickstarted, which is like a, it's a kind of the same thing, spiral bound, probably the same dimensions. Um, it's just graph paper and, and line paper. You know, it's a tiny little pocket sized notebook. It's great. I love that thing. Um, but yeah, this BX Monster Index is. Uh, it's sort of like the old Monsters and Treasure supplement from original D&D, where it's, you know, it just has, it's a table of monsters. Yeah, which I use for BX. I use Monster and Treasure's uh, assortment, the one that came out with all three bound together. Mm-hmm. It's a good tool. It's a, it's a nice resource. Um, he does have a comic. I think the comic is really well done. Um, it This definitely does remind me a lot of you know, just classic Dragon Magazine. Um, mm-hmm. The Dungeon Delvers is uh, the comic that he's got. One thing I don't really care for is he's also episodically creating the adventure parts of the comic, but the serialized adventure portions of the comic are like an issue ahead of where the comic is right now. So, like, if you read that portion, the Crimson Abbey of the Broken God, uh, you you're spoiling yourself for the comic <laughs> adventure I really portion. Like that actually, I um, and so this is a um, there's a there's a web comic I love called Keep on the Borderlands, where mm-hmm. um, somebody rolled through the entirety of Keep on the Borderlands, rolled all the rolls, and then illustrated it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in progress now. And so what's interesting about it, even though I know Keep on the Borderlands relatively well, is that the characters' fates are left up to random roles. So Yeah. Um, but I actually really I really dig that there's a kind of a intro to the dungeon and then a comic illustrating it because in a way it kind of um helps you visualize how you would run this. And I I, you know, once it gets to a big enough thing to where you could run the whole thing, I think it would be kind of neat to run the whole thing and then hand your players these pages. I agree. But the problem that I'm finding with the comic is it is actually about an issue behind where the adventure is. So if you're just reading the comic, which, you know, you know I, I like to do. Um, you kind of already know what's going to happen in the comic, and I—I I don't know. I guess I would—I would like it if maybe it's just like yeah. a, an organizational thing where if so you we're, put... we're we're approaching it like um, I'm thinking of it as an after the fact DM tool, and you're just as a fan of comics wanting to read the comic. Yeah, because it's really charming. The art style is like really nice. I like the characters. I do like the intro to the characters. I think they're they're like really interesting. Their interactions in the uh, in the comic themselves, I I really like. Um, 
like these characters you can kind of see that they all kind of they have a history and like a dynamic um but like you know i so spoilers for people who are going to read these uh i guess as i'm complaining about spoilers like i know that when they get to the crypt of like the crimson monks that all the skeletons on the sarcophaguses are going to come to life and attack them but in the in the issue where they it explains that in the module portion, they're just now opening the door to the the sarcophagus room. I mean, to be fair, if there's if a you, room full of skeletons, <laughs> you're definitely you've gonna fight those skeletons. Four seconds of Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, anyone who has ever watched anything pertaining to Dungeons and Dragons knows that uh, I'm gonna have to fight those skeletons. But, you know, suspension of disbelief. I, I respect that he's keeping with the old dragon format. I'm thinking back to Wormy and Phil and Dixie, where the comics were always at the end. Yeah. But I, I think if he moved the comic to the beginning of the zine, it would have a better impact. Because it really almost feels as if the comic is aimed at the players, and the adventure is obviously aimed at the dungeon yeah, master. Yeah, so. that's something I was kind of talking about. Like, even if just organizationally, if he put the comic portion before the rules break down, mm-hmm. hey, it would be great. Yeah. I don't know if, you know, because the comic is, it's a full-page comic. You know, it's six or seven panels um that might be with just the graphic design of the the zine itself that might be a problem so i I can respect that there may be a limitation there for why he's doing it that way um there's you know want ads he's he's got his you know any any condition copies of b2 keep on the borderlands uh and the mold bay basic and expert rule books um then there's you know an ad for the BX Companion, which we uh, did an episode about several years ago, and he's got. Some... I think one thing worth mentioning that mm-hmm. he does go into, and I really enjoyed reading this because he's very uh, articulate about expressing this. Is this isn't really a um, fanzine strictly about one version of Dungeons and Dragons. This is yeah. a fanzine about basic Dungeons and Dragons and all its incarnations. And um, he really has, I think it's an issue three, where he talks about how there's kind of, um, yeah, it's an issue three, uh, the edition overlap, a letter from the fanzine creator. He starts uh, each issue with a letter from the fanzine creator, which I really like reading. Um, He talks about how how little the rules really matter, especially between versions of basic, which are are some of the closest versions of D&D. Yeah, um, I, I like the way he puts it where he says, when you think back to the best moments you've had in gaming, it never had to do with rules. No. Hmm. It was it's always something that you did or or a story beat from, you know, your DM. I, I like this was my favorite uh, letter from the fanzine creator because he like throws a bunch of shade on people who are like. <laughs> Back me is a completely different game than Moldvay Cook. And it's like, yo, dog, it's not. Like <laughs> it's you gotta you gotta get into real minute details to say that this is a completely different game. If you talk to anyone who played original D or even AD&D in the nineteen eighties, literally every single one of them will go, Yeah, like we just we combined all this stuff together. Like 
It was the I same think, game. I think to there's us. a fair check with them that will say we did not realize that, that they, they were, were different. different I in 2002, after a complete departure from the old system of D and D from the 70s and 80s, I was combining a D and D stuff with my third edition stuff. Sure. You can make it work. You roll a d20 and you go, is this number high enough to go? Yes. And then you do it. Like, You know, we were talking earlier about retailers in the 80s and Walden books and, and whatnot. And and big box stores were where D&D really hit its stride. And none of those people in the 80s had a clue that any of this stuff was different. So everything was grouped together. And also, too, availability was so much lesser, I guess is the word I'm looking for back then, mm-hmm. that when right. stuff was in stock, you bought it. Like, you didn't buy, right. yes. you know, like, I'm not going to go there and I'm only going to buy the AD&D mm-hmm. stuff. No, if there's D&D stuff there, you buy it because the yeah. chances of it being there the next time you come back are pretty low. Hmm. So If it has dungeons in the title anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I don't know about that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is a paperback. What's this? <laughs> Oops. Dungeons of the Highland by Kate McKinnon. Not Kate McKinnon. I gotta. We gotta cut that name out. That's a real person. <laughs> that is not a made up like fantasy romance novelist name. That is a real life actress who is currently active. <laughs> Sorry, Kate McKinnon. I I loved you in Ghostbusters. Uh man. Um. Trying to think of what else we can kind of cover on this. Uh, I do like, so I like the monsters that he's giving. There is one, like, kind of covering them. There was an adventure where you fight, uh, you fight Batman. Well, Bat Snake Men. Um, bat Snakes. Bat Snakes. With, snakes. Yeah, Bat Snakes Men. Man, man, bear pig. Um, See, I was picturing, I was picturing um, bird wings for some reason, which doesn't make any sense. I thought he like expressly said they were like leathery wings. I mean, like snake men with bird wings. Like, definitely, there's a real world. Yeah, he does say leathery in, like, wings. Give Aztec culture. One thing that so I'm actually gonna get a little critical here. Of I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to be nice, trying to say nice things because uh, I think like I do. I love scenes. I, I think they're great products to have. Um, and it's cool that people take time to make free content. Well, not free content, cheap content for, um, you know, this hobby to, to grow it and bring people in. Yeah, this this mm-hmm. thing's $2.50 for issue three. That's For cheap. a print copy. For a print. Yeah, that's cheap. Yeah, like, if you want the PDF, it's $1.50. That's less than a cup of coffee. That's less than... A magazine you can't you can't buy people for two fifty. Um, yeah, <laughs> you should have chose a different magazine. Oh no, I am just <laughs> not on the ball tonight. Now you're on the internet talking about buying people. Oh, it's okay. Uh, in, on Critical Wits, uh, we definitely talked about like killing all the old people, so it's fine. It's that's a, a thing on record. I'm saying, and also a government watch list. I'm on the. Snake men. It's weird to me that they have a poisonous bite when their top half is the torso of a man and their bottom half is a snake part. Like, I think, I feel like that should be reversed if you're going to have a poison attack. Also, I will say Tom Tom Wilson uh, loves savored effects, which is yeah. the yeah. name of our show, but also probably like one of my least favorite parts of classic D&D. Oh, I, I like savored They're I like fine. Killing, killing I think characters. they're best in moderation i think it depends on what 
type of game you're running entirely. And there are games I run where I, I would lean away from them. And there are games where I, I want to have character rotation be a part of the game. Yeah, I, I definitely, I don't shy away from them, but I, I think that, it should be done in moderation. It, it just seems like it's like a, a running theme with a few of his monsters. There's a, like, Mastodon war machine in one of the adventures that has the yeah, ability to spit a glob of poison. And I'm just like, I don't understand why this yeah, machine has that. that. pretty weird. A saber die poison launching Mastodon. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the Mastodon War Machine is a cool that. idea. I really piloted by kobolds who are extorting the like local townsfolk. I think that's a cool idea. Um, yes, and what I like about these types of of modules where they're not story based but they're environment based mm-hmm. is that's a game that I could run probably five times with five completely different outcomes. Yeah, and they're always gonna react differently. Um, I don't know. I guess it's like don't forget about reaction rules. Uh, players if you're playing in these adventures it's like oh we should check and see what they're gonna do before we charge in that's another thing getting back to what we were talking about the difference between kind of new school D and old school D is like everybody like the order of operations in bx and and you know homes and things like that is that you roll for initiative and then the dm checks for reaction and then uh, they will react however they're going to react in that uh, round. But the players, if they declare their actions to just flat out attack, then that's when you get like, you can kind of have the moral victory. Of, like you just killed all the kobold babies because you, you, you're trigger happy. You're a loose cannon McGruff. I don't know. I'm, I don't know what's with me and names right now. <laughs> you're, everybody. You're really, you're I'm, really not on the ball. I'm usually really bad with names. And uh, <laughs> uh, McGruff, the crime dog, yeah. second level veteran. We're taking your badge for killing kobolds. That really does seem kind of cannibalistic in nature. You took a bite out of crime, but also a unique culture with their own rules and laws. <laughs> See, I, I completely shy away from that stuff. Um, I don't like adding it in my games. I don't like mixed morality on 90% of my monsters. They are they are inherently evil creatures. Mm-hmm. And they you will never encounter um goblin babies in my games. It doesn't happen. <laughs> Same actually, I'm not like that's not my flavor of D&D, but it is sort of like it's a good teaching tool for your players to be like, "Hey, you should maybe like, you know, the the world isn't monsters. Maybe aren't necessarily always out to kill you. They're you know they may be monsters, but right? But there are other like Hitler. there are other creatures I will do that with. I actually do that with like giants. I think there's there's room to make giants kind of um, yeah. The gold dragon I think is a good like classic example of that. Well, I actually ix ixnay gold dragons in my games too. Okay. I, I only have evil chromatic dragons in any of my games. Hmm. I, I don't. I don't have this. There's no such thing as a good dragon in my Dungeons and Dragons. Hmm. I know that's a huge departure from the lore, but it doesn't exist. Just a preference, Carl, or what? Well, because I like the idea in a game of Dungeons and Dragons for the dragon to be set up as the ultimate boss monster. And so fighting a dragon in my 
at my table is always a virtuous task. Hmm. They they should be destroyed because they are innately inherently evil creatures that are a blight upon the world. Um, they, there there's no dragons out there doing good things for people. They are greedy, nasty, evil creatures that should be destroyed. So it always makes that like an honorable goal, something that people should be striving towards. Hmm. I met a old school player at a convention in Calgary, Alberta years ago. I'll never forget what he said. He had the same thing. He didn't allow good dragons in his games. And I loved what he said. And I, I encourage you to steal this. He, he remember him saying that there are no good dragons in my game, just like there are no friendly dungeons. Hmm. Yeah. And he said, a game of Dungeons and Dragons, the Dungeons and the Dragons are both against you. Yeah, that's that's my exact mentality on it. Yeah, I'm definitely a big fan of uh, the mythic underworld concept, where the the dungeon itself is an antagonist that sort of doesn't operate by the established rules of reality, where that's why doors close automatically, that's why all monsters have infravision. It's because this is the dungeon is trying to kill you. Yeah, I actually like connecting all those things in my games where the same driving impetus entity, whatever it is, behind dragons is also behind orcs. It's also behind these dungeons existing. I just use it as like, you know, it's it's the cosmic force of chaos um, is sort of how I, you know, and I, I treat chaos as this is something that wants to destroy not just all goodly civilizations, but life in general. Um, We've do we... gotten off the rails. We have. <laughs> I think, to kind of get back on track here, I think we should each talk about one monster we liked and one um, magic item we liked, because he has both of those things in each issue. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, do you want to start with that? Yeah, for sure. Um, Monster-wise, I, I like the Stone Gorilla because it has such a huge potential for surprise. I think that would be a great monster to throw in because I would never suspect a gorilla statue is actually being alive and, and coming to life. I can have a lot of fun with that as a DM. Hmm. Um, nice, simple, nothing elaborate about it. And it's not not something your players would expect. That's really, I, The union between the primate and a wingless gargoyle is like... That's a love <laughs> affair if you've ever heard one. Um, <laughs> I also like the belt of flying. I thought the belt of flying was just a nice, simple magic item that has a lot of potential. And I love, love that he answers the obvious question that your players are going to forget about, about how you, you can wish to cease flying at any time, even while in mid flight. I know that's going to happen. Someone's <laughs> going to turn it off. Those were my favorites. Carl? Um, my favorite, I really liked the uh, mirrored runts. Oh, yeah. Runts the mirrored runts were pretty that, cool. That launch your spells back at you. I think that's such a really neat idea for a, a, basically this non-threatening little monster. And as soon as you launch a magic missile at it, you kill your wizard. Yeah. I uh, yes. I like that adventure. That adventure kind of stuck out to me because you encounter the, the mirrored runts. And they're not really the antagonists of that adventure. They actually right. want to hire you, um, which I thought was like, oh, this is like a neat, like classic D&D of like, ha I've pulled the wool over your eyes. You're well, dead, Presto Sarcanicus, first level wizard. For magic item, again, uh, it's like Jonathan, really, really simple one. Um, 
I really like just the never hungry bowl. I like stuff <laughs> like that, that kind of, um, they're, they're, I, I don't want to say mundane magic items. I mean, that's obviously a powerful magical item. Um, uh, but it's not something that's going to shift the nature of the campaign or, or even the, um, the, uh, the power of the player character, but it is something that they can have that's nice and magical. And it, it gives them something to kind of lean on in their narrative of like, they don't have to worry about purchasing food at the inn or, or even going hungry uh, in the dungeon. So that's fairly powerful in its um, capability of keeping you alive through long dungeon delves, but it's only going to help one person because hmm. it only, well, it's it feeds only two able people, to conjure three it? meals per day. I thought it's fed two people. The meals were big enough for two. Uh, well, yep, you're right. Food enough to feed two people. Think... Sorry, I'm a fat guy. <laughs> 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 I said, I'm going to eat all that soup. You don't know me, Thom Wilson. <laughs> uh, for me, I think my favorite uh, monster to come out of this, oddly enough, is the Macedon of Calamity. I would change a few things about it, um, but I definitely did like this monster. I there's not enough for my money, there's not enough big like not enough big monsters in classic D&D. Like there are a few, but this is, you know, it's got nine hit dice, it's AC3, it attacks four times per round. I think it would be a great uh kind of cap monster to throw off in an adventure. Um I would probably make the poison just a breath weapon, just like it shoots fire. And I would also make it, there's an odd bit that it, it is indiscernible from a regular elephant. I would just make it like a Trojan horse, like made of wood uh, with like, make it clockwork or something like that. Um, yeah. I would also not have it be a save or die effect. It would, I would treat it like, just like a breath weapon, like a dragon's breath weapon. Um, and then, from that same issue is my uh, my choice for magic item, which is the map of Mot Nye, which is sort of like a you you know it's it's a nice thing where you basically always have a map of the wilderness you're in. It's um, like fantasy GPS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> once per week. It's it's more of an artifact. That's something I noticed him doing as the issues progressed. That the magic items became more instead of like single use or. Um, you know, like lower level magic items or magic swords, they became more like artifacts, or what I would define mm-hmm. to be an artifact. Um, you know, it's it's got a name attached to it. Um, but once per week, they can activate the map and cast a spell with the effects of commune, and they can ask questions about the location uh, of an object or a place or a person, and then the map will mark it with an X if it's within 50 miles of them. I think that's really cool. Like, if you're hunting someone, you know, you can pull up your your map and go, where's uh, Cardract Sin? And it'll it'll give you the location of it. That's uh, Cardract Sin is the evil magic user you're hunting, I guess. But, uh, I don't know, do we have anything else to say about these? Um... The one thing I really liked about the, not the one thing, there's a lot to like about the Mastodon of Calamity, Mm -hmm. but um, one of the really cool things about it is you can um, take it over. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can, you can, uh, you can end up driving that thing. And I, you know, that kind of makes me want to talk about the adventure elements because this is one I, 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 
when I was reading through the adventures, I really, I really liked them because I mean, they're, they're brief one shot, you mm-hmm. know, you'll, you'll be done with these in a night, but they're kind of like have some room to build upon with ideas. I, uh, the Macedon one specifically, um, I would change it. I wouldn't make it that they, that they stole this from, um, good people. I would change it to where they stole this from bad people. Hmm. And so, uh, well, I mean, uh, they stole it from gnomes. So I think like you guys are saying the same thing <laughs> in my, in my games, gnomes are good people. And in Crispy's games, gnomes don't exist. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if, if he stole it from somebody who was an evil entity, then that means they would be coming after you for their Macedon if you take it over. And it gives you that kind of adventure hook, pulling them into a deeper um, environment, a deeper narrative than just now we have this new item. One thing about the Elephant of Calamity, I love the idea of it. Like Carl said, I really love that you can take it over. But one thing that made me, it made me laugh and made me kind of scratch my head is he replaced the trample took the trample rules that the normal elephant has and the expert rules. And he gave it a tail spike or a spike tail. And I laughed because I remember the, it's nearly indiscernible from the real thing. I'm like, I've never <laughs> noticed a spike on an elephant's tail, but I'll have to look. <laughs> so. But no, it's, I mean, he it's, said nearly, nearly indiscernible. That's the <laughs> discernible true. part. But I think it needs the trample. I think, have, especially being uh, automaton, I think a large, you know, something you can control. Oh heck yeah! If, if I get control of the thing, I'm going to be trampling all sorts of stuff. That's the most fun part. Right. I do like the idea I, of like player characters with grappling hooks being able to like grapple onto the top of it and climb in and jump into the cockpit and have a melee inside. This is yeah, absolutely. It's an ATAT. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Um. I like that you power it with magic items. I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff about it. I like that you just stick a magic item in it, and then you lose that magic item, but you power it up for a little while and get to get to fight in a giant mastodon. Yeah. So I think we all agree I had the best pick. Yeah, yeah. We, we, <laughs> we failed. You won. It's okay. You know, that's that's why they pay me the no bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, I I think I, there is one thing we haven't really talked about, which um, he, he does give a commentary on a spell each mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's it's just like his opinion, man. So I don't I don't know how much I can comment on that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't have anything negative to say about it. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, charm person. I. I I run Charm Person a little bit differently. He talks about it being kind of a servile type of thing, where if you charm someone, they're your servant. And no, I, I run Charm Person where if you charm them, they think you're their friend. Yeah, that's, that's it. I, I'm pretty and sure I'm, that's I'm not a servant how to my friends. To be. Uh, but that's just how I run it. I mean, and and I, I think sleep is definitely a powerful first level spell, and mm-hmm. I think. Fireball is definitely a powerful third level spell, and I think that's just one of the things about old school D and D. That's is that the spell levels don't necessarily dictate the spell power. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's okay to have powerful spells. Like if you you get one per day, yeah, yeah I think it should be it should be strong. That's your 
that's your one, you know? Um, so I guess we'll move on here. Um, is this a product you would recommend? Uh, Jonathan. Yes, I would. Um, I think the price is right for the amount of content you get. And like Carl said earlier in the show, the consistency is there. And that to me is a very important part of a product that I'd like to support that when I give you my dollars, I know what I'm going to get every time I get your product. And Mm -hmm. he definitely delivers on that. Carl, what about you? I agree. I mean, I I will uh, continue to purchase this in PDF format. I, um, uh, I mean, the printout, I, I have a physical copy of the first issue, and the printout is um, great. I mean, it's it's on really nice paper. It's a really clear printout. But um, I don't, you know, it's not something I would ever have the full thing of at my table. Mm-hmm. I would probably print out one of the quests and maybe run it, one of the uh, mini modules. Um but I don't know if I would ever need the whole thing in print. Um, so as a PDF, and it's always there to go get, you can go back and get all four issues we've talked about today mm-hmm. uh, through RPG Now, a buck fifty a piece. And I, I think each and every one of them is worth a dollar fifty. Um, but yeah, I agree. Um, uh, I agree with Jonathan agreeing with me about what I said about it being consistent. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I think that's a big deal because you this could easily be a mishmash every issue mm-hmm. and you're you're never really sure what's going to come and it being so consistent you know you're going to get an adventure you know you're going to get monsters and magic items and you can easily reskin any of these adventures if you if you don't like winged snakes for whatever reason you can still use that dungeon and it's 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 well drawn out and you have it there and you can just say okay I'll have this be the dungeon that happens to be in the direction the players went that I haven't prepped for yeah i uh I agree. And one thing he does kind of talking about the consistency, you know, he did talk in one of the um, letters from the fanzine editor where he, you know, a lot of people have been like, oh, you should do this. You should do that. You should do this. You should make it this many pages, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, yo, uh, everybody slowly roll. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. So I'm cool with just making it like a dozen and a half pages or so every quarter. Eventually, maybe, but I don't know if I'm ready. For, I, I don't know if I'm ready for that commitment. It's not you guys. It's me. Uh, I definitely, uh, I also am going to go with my, I, I think this is a great product. Um, I definitely think for the price, it's it's right. You know, you get half hours worth of reading, maybe 45 minutes if you're going real in-depth with it. Uh, for, you know a buck 50 so the price you would pay for gas station coffee which is you know that's that's a great price um i agree with uh with jonathan agreeing with carl uh about the consistency i think that's a strong suit of it um and again like the even if you don't get it in print if you have, I mean, like, I don't know if this is a thing I can tell people to do. If not, like, um, if you wanted to print out the portions of it or even the full physical thing from PDF on your own dime, you you could do that. It's, it's you know, 12 to 16 pages each issue. You know, print that stuff double-sided. It's, yeah. you know. I, I mean, I don't think it would 
it would save you a lot of money to print it out yourself. Honestly. Probably not. I mean, it probably I mean, would. You could print it at a lower quality than he prints it. I mean, yeah. that that's true. Um, but if you wanted it to look as nice as his version, you're not saving money by printing yeah. it yourself. Well, really. yeah, if you wanted to just have it as like a resource to like, like you could print the the dungeon that goes along with the comic, you could just print out those pages and put them in like a a three hole punch them and put them in a binder. And then when that comic series runs its course, you have that whole adventure, which is really cool. Yeah. I absolutely plan on doing that. I want, (laughs) I want to print out the comic and, and have it as a little handout and run these adventures. Um, I run lots of games with kids. um, Mm -hmm. So I think that would be cool to, to have this, um, handout for after the game of like this is the adventure you just played so keep it kid friendly Tom that's my request <laughs> I think he probably <laughs> will um, just because you know I, I don't think that there's a place for it just the tone and style it doesn't seem like it would go with adult themes it's very it's very oh you, you never since I, I, I forgot to warn people about this that uh, keep on the Borderlands web comic um, that I love. It's great. It's a fantastic comic. Not kid friendly. Hmm. Not safe for work. Okay, uh, but I think that'll do it for us for this episode. I guess we can um, respond to an email here. So this comes from Alex B. Uh, he says, first, I wanted to say how happy I am that you guys kept the podcast going. I hope that there are no more big lineup changes in the near future. I have a couple of questions to make this email worthwhile. First, do you ever have trouble getting people to play BX or Beckme or OD&D or any clones thereof? I find that some people prefer 3.5 or 5th edition, but are happy to play AD&D if that's what I'm running. But even AD&D fans will complain about the 3-point alignment system, limited race and class selection, and races class. I personally like limiting demi-humans because I hate the Moss Eisley Cantina style of play. I figure most fantasy worlds are like 90-99% to humans, but adventuring parties are mostly non-human. Often. Um, This leads to my second question. Do you have any strong feelings one way or another about the aforementioned Moss Eisley style play? Like I said, I prefer the three humans and a dwarf type of play to the dragonborn, tiefling, gnome, and drow party. What do you guys think? Thank you for your time and for answering my questions. Alex B. I... I definitely run a more humanocentric world, but, you know, that's just even that word comes from, you know, reading Holmes as a kid. Um, I definitely do have problems getting people to play BX or Back Me or Swords and Wizardry um, or OD&D because people, I don't know what it is, where it comes from. There's this weird trend, I think, in role-playing games to take the game portion out of role-playing games. Like, people want it to be more of a simulation or more of a narrative function, and I I find that, you know, rolling a d6 and plotting out your movements and sort of even having metagame thinking of how to tackle problems is really frowned upon, and I I don't think it's that big of a deal. I don't think it's that big of a deal. Um... That's that's my take. What about you guys? I agree that basic among any of the versions of Dungeons and Dragons is the one that is most like a game first and the other parts second. Mm-hmm. 
where I would say even as early as AD&D, it started kind of escaping that. Um, I think the biggest resistance you will get from for playing basic is race as class. Mm-hmm. I think that's the number one thing that people hear and they go, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand it and I don't like it. And there was a point where I thought I would never go back to that style of play. Um, uh, when I first came back into role-playing games, I was playing Castles and Crusades. I thought it was a great system. I still think it's a great system. Um, but uh, I ended up getting the red box as a birthday present from my sister because uh, she found a bunch of RPG material. Mm-hmm. And I read the, the red box, and that's what convinced me to go back to um, kind of my roots were uh, rule cyclopedia going back to a racist class game. And I, I have found I vastly prefer it the reason I prefer races class, it provides distinct differences between demi-human society and human society, where in a race and class separate game, um, all of the races sort of kind of feel like humans with different powers. And, and not only does it determine their culture, you know, I want to, I want to be able to run a game in a world there are no elven thieves because the concept of ownership is so different in elven society whereas as soon as you make it race and class separate not only are there elven thieves they're a high percentage of the thieves that exist because the elven racial powers complement the thief class powers i do think that like the i don't know i i I feel like there is a trend towards against racist class when you get more granular with the rules and and sort of start getting more ability options like i am as as everyone is very well aware i love elves like that's the thing that i want to play um but in in newer editions you know i'm gonna play an elf fighter thief i'm gonna play an elf um ranger i'm gonna play an elf thief i'm gonna you know or an elf fighter wizard or an elf wizard you know i'm i'm not gonna like hypothetically i can't say this for true because i actually am doing this so you, you wouldn't play an elf barbarian i am doing that because it's funny to me <laughs> but see that's the other reason why i dislike race and class separate is 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 that type of style where you you're not drawn to a character because it's a concept you like you're drawn to a character because it's wackadoo and weird and you think it would be i definitely agree uh because that's happening in my fifth edition game um i was like hey like you guys can be any anything that was made by wizards of the coast play death material included and i've got like I've got a bunch of turtle men. I've got like a goblin. I've got a frog barbarian. And it's just like, this is not <laughs> my flavor of fantasy. Like, and, and well, I, think I think that's what it comes down to is it, there's definitely like an aesthetic to classic D&D that even exists, I think, outside of a D&D. Um, I agree. Where it's 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 like the, the Rankin and Bass Hobbit and like a uh, Lord of the Rings movies, you know, like Legolas in an open blouse with his long blonde hair laughing merrily. That's the fantasy I want to play. I don't want to play like <laughs> I don't even want to play like the Tui, like a band of adventurers in a in the forest pouring over a map. And I don't it's I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Like 
Um, well, the- here's the here's the reason it it doesn't sit well with me, and it's just because it doesn't make sense in the narrative for simple townsfolk to be terrified of goblins if you're an eight foot dragonborn that they're seeking help from. Eight. <laughs> I hate. I hate non-standard races. I'm just gonna I'm gonna get out there. I hate it. Like uh, if if you listen to the show and you know me personally, um, I'm mad at you because you wanted to play a knoll. Because it's like, how do you you you? It is unrealistic to go. Well, I mean, this person's a knoll, so now every single every single time that they freaking come to a new town, I have to friggin' like make all the town folks mad at them and hate them and want to run them out of town and like fearful of them. And that's exhausting because it's every time, (laughs) every single time, like that's what realistically would happen. I think also when you deal with these more fantastic races in, in the game and I specifically tiefling dragonborn, um, uh, when you, when those become part of the core of the game, then the other fantasy elements that your group encounters become less fantastic. It's hard to be inspired by the first time you encounter uh, a, a special monster when you have special monsters from the start traveling with you. Yeah, your your Thrycreen monk. It's not gonna. It's like oh, like you you you've happened upon the the fantastic rainbow bridge by Frost. And it's like the the party of the Thrycreen monk, the Era Crocker Ranger, the <laughs> deep known illusionist, the dragonborn paladin, and the tabaxi. These are all re- these are not like garbage words that I'm making up. These are all real things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jonathan, I'm really curious about your your ideas on because I know you um you kind of you you run a modern game. Mm-hmm. Um, that you move towards classic. Um, uh, I can't think of words today. I stayed up really late last night registering for <laughs> North Texas RPG Con, <laughs> trying to get into a Holmes basic game because there was a slot open, but then it disappeared. Um, so, well, you 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 run a you run a modern game with classic ideals present. The the challenge in what. You just said about you know running a modern day game with with the classic ideals is if your elves can be whatever class your human can be if your elves encounter NPC elves um, that are not hostile what what makes them different like what makes them distinct and why and and I really don't like the fact that having class separate from race with the demihumans, it doesn't make them feel like a race. They feel more like a character, uh, an attribute on the character sheet. And that's what ends up happening in the modern day games is like you said earlier, someone said earlier, people don't take races because they want to play their fantasy ideal of an elf or a dwarf or, or whatever. They take the race because they've got the best attributes for the class they want to take in the end. Um, and, and the whole race aspect and culture gets lost in between. And I always have this running internal monologue that if your elven magic user, or let's say elven thief, uh, meets up with an elven civilization that has no thieves, 
that would be a huge point of interest. You know, like how the heck are you a thief? Elves aren't thieves. And if they were thieves, how are they different? And, and you know, how would you learn from it? And I think it adds something players rarely go into because they look at it not as I'm playing a fantasy ideal. They look at it as I get X, Y, Z bonuses to whatever. And I don't like that. I think that takes a lot of the fantasy out of the game and makes it more into almost like a board game, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it makes it into something that's not telling a story. It's more making it something of a numbers game. So that that's kind of my spin on it. It's hard for me to enforce race versus class in uh, current editions, not because I, you know the players necessarily don't like it, but sadly, race and, and class being separate things are so ingrained, especially in the younger kids who who grew up on video games. Uh, you don't see video games where you you pick a race and that's also your class. So they're not used to that. It's a very foreign concept, and they often rebel against it like i said earlier they're, they're not really that's not something they're like you, you what do you mean i can't be a fighter if i'm if if i'm an elf i have to be a magic or whatever the case may be and so that takes a bit of a mind shift so i kind of push it into the gameplay later on it, it sometimes works out so i i think I, anytime that you have um something that modifies the character uh more than the base decision you end up referring to the character by those numbers instead of the character. So like when you have race and class separate, it stops mattering that your character is an elf or a dwarf because it only really matters that your character is a fighter or a thief or a wizard. That's what pertains more to your character's abilities. And then when you add skills on top of that, then your, your character becomes more of a list of skills than a class. You know, it matters less that your fighter, um, uh, is a fighter it matters more that his perception skill is this and his stealth skill is that and that's what now defines the character list of skills and so when i what i like a lot about classic basic dnd well specifically basic dnd because that's another point of discernment that i think a lot of people especially younger people like myself who go back into these games they don't realize that race's class was a was a concept that was only really fully introduced in 1981 and, mm-hmm. and OD&D is a racing class separate game even though there are limitations on it. Um, but uh, when you go back and play a, a racist class a, a BX or a Beckme game it really is you know what type of character do you like from your fantasy fiction let's put that in this game instead of what powers and skills do you want. I definitely think that, yeah, when you start getting into those options, uh, it's really hard to define what a class is. Um, we did an episode of Critical Wits, which is another show I did um, a few years ago, where we actually did talk about classes versus career versus archetype. And I made the argument that I think that old school D&D definitely deals more with archetypes. You know, you yes. you have your elf adventure, you have your dwarf adventure. Your dwarf is always a fighter, but your your dwarf is definitely Gimli or, you know, you're the rough and tumble ready to go fighter who hates goblins. Um whereas I think when you start introducing more options, 
it starts to become more about your role in combat and your role of how you how you mechanically solve problems. Um, I think it like and and the game is about fighting. Like it's I, I I'm not gonna make the argument that D and D isn't about killing stuff because it is. Um, it has its basis in wargaming. Um, but I. I feel, and I'm not, I mean, I don't have any, like, way to concretely say this. I feel that when you um, are more limited in your scope of choices, that the choices that you make become more impactful. So I could roll up a character with a 13 strength and a 15 constitution, and I could go, I could be a fighter with that, that's, like, great fighter score. Or I could be a dwarf... And just that simple binary choice makes a huge difference in how I'm going to play that character. You know, whereas in in a more modern game, I could take those scores and go, well, you know, I could be a fighter, but like realistically, I should be a barbarian. A barbarian. You know, I could I could be a half orc and get this the bonus to my strength score to bump that up, so I'll be equally strong and tough. Or I could you know go this way and really double down on constitution. And I feel like you start running those numbers, and you're not making those choices because it's like oh I, I want to play a dwarf because that would be interesting with what I have rolled, versus like how can I best capitalize on what I've rolled and make the best mechanical choices. Um, I want to jump back in because I feel like we've been on this for a while. Um, things that people hate about classic TNT uh, and makes them like real reticent to play it. Um, I don't know. I know Carl doesn't do this, but I do. I'm, I'm not sure about you, Jonathan. Uh, I don't do variable weapon damage. I run everything as a D6. Because I like the idea of, you know, one good strike with a dagger is going to be just as deadly if you hit somebody in the throat as it would be with a sword. And that's something players are just like, I don't get to use all my cool colorful dice? What is that? Uh, People do not like that. That's a tough one. It's a tough one because I can see both sides of the issue where the variable weapon dice can represent the different weapons but like you said it's not as much the actual weapon it's how you use it and you can do the same amount of damage with a dagger as you can the halberd you know depending on who you are i've never used the same weapon die but i've always wanted to it's one of those things i'd like to do i just need to have the right group to be able to do it and i can experiment and see maybe yeah. one day yeah, like well, I mean, we talked about this. I think just as recently as last episode, mm-hmm. where I said um, I only like a change with a mechanical change in the way the weapon is used. So I like variable weapon dies, but only insofar as if you use a two-handed weapon, you're um, getting a bigger damage die than a one-handed weapon because otherwise, no one would ever use a two-handed weapon. You would always want a shield and a one-handed weapon. But yeah. I don't like. An axe does a D6, a sword does a D8, so you better use a sword or you're a doofus. Yeah. I want to I say, because I feel like we've not done anything to help, um, actually help Alex with his question. And I think one thing that you can do to get people to play specifically basic or, or 
or Beck Me or OD&D or any of that is not call it by its technical name. Like if you go, we're playing BXD&D, that means nothing to a huge portion mm -hmm. of people that would otherwise be interested in your game. Just call it old school D&D or 80s D&D or 70s D&D, depending Stranger on Stranger Things D&D. Say it in those terms, I think people would be more, it's almost like a buzzword. You know, you market it and, and you can get more interest. And that's um, actually what I had to do with uh, my group. I I I had a preamble that I sort of prepared, um, and this might work for you actually, Alex. Is I was like, hey, we're we're gonna play D and D, but we're gonna play old school D and D, and this is my wheelhouse. This is the stuff that I you can't say this part, but this is the stuff I make a show about. Um, and I just sort of was like, all right, I mean, he like can say that no one's no one knows. Yeah, Alex, can that's have a true. Show. Alex could say he's either one of us, but uh, you know, I I sat everyone down and was like, hey, like. This is, it's like the older version of the rule, so it's a little less mechanically savvy. Uh, just keep in mind that, you know, it plays more like a game than it does a simulation. So it's really abstracted. And it's more about dealing with, you know, archetypes and things like that. So, you know, there's a few weird rules, but once you get over them, I promise, like, it's the same experience you've had previously. And, you know, I just sort of, like, explained, like, because my the people I tend to play with don't really like skill systems. Like, you know, when you're going to try to solve a problem, you have to look at it as more of like a, like a logic puzzle. Like, how do I engage? Not how do I engage directly with the world to solve a problem versus what can I do on my character sheet to start, like, solve a problem? And that was something that they really resonated with, I think. So far, everyone's having a good time, presumably. <laughs> um, you just kind of have to, I don't know, like the primer for old school gaming by uh, Matthew Finch is a good document to have around. Um, there's a huge forum post by Luke Crane where he sort of gives a recap of how like the rules work out. Um, that is is really good. I'll try to find that. Um, Luke Crane, you know, uh, the guy who makes the Mascot RPG, uh, Burning Wheel System, Torchbearer, um, he's a gigantic, like, <laughs> he's a gigantic Mulvey cook nerd, so, uh, you know, look up anything by him, um, and that can kind of give you some resources for how to frame this game as something you think that people would want to engage with, and I, I find that, you know, stating why you love this game and, you know, showing that passion for specifically why you like this version is enough to get people to try it. Agreed. That, that, that's, that was going to be my kind of spin on that, that think about why, what made you choose, uh, back me or BX, whatever you're wanting to play, whatever system, I mean, it could be freaking fourth edition, but whatever system you choose to play, Look at the reasons why you chose that and use that as part of your, your sales pitch to other people to show what, and, and most importantly, I think any version of D and D because we're so infused in a society now with not only D &D, but fantasy sci-fi I and mean, this stuff is everywhere. And so many of these words are now commonplace uh, show what you can do with it. Because a lot of people are not going to look at these older versions of the game and, and immediately think, I can do this with my imagination. 
show what you can do with the system and use how like the system as kind of a tool to do that. And then people say, wow, that's a really fun game. I want to try that out and play it. Hmm. Um, I think getting into his second question, I think we kind of conveyed um, if we have any strong feelings one way or another about the aforementioned Moss Eisley style party. Um, I yeah. don't. I, yes, I have very strong feelings against it. Personally. Don't like it. Would not recommend. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Agree. I, I guess that'll be our show for this uh, this issue, episode, adventure, whichever. I don't <laughs> adventure. I think it's adventures. Adventure. Um, we are adventures. Yeah. So you know, again, uh, for the Save or Die podcast, I've I've been crispy, and I've been Carl with uh, special guest <laughs> Jonathan. And you know, remember, like we have always said for the last seven years, uh, keep it classic. <laughs> eat a classic. Well, let me tell you something, brother. The Save or Die Podcast Immortal Edition is a production of Wild Games Productions, brother. It is produced for entertainment purposes only, Jack. All other uses are prohibited, dude. So be sure to visit them at saverdie.info for more information, brother. What you gonna do when the Saver Die podcast runs wild on you? Ooh. Lots of people kept telling me how to pronounce your name because they were saying that people get it wrong, which I, it seems pretty easy to me. It's just Joe Manganiello. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Who has butchered it the worst well, in your career? <laughs> Uh, you know, I was hosting uh, WWE Monday Night Raw Wrestling uh, with with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Hulk Hogan. And uh, you know, we were you know rehearsing, going over what we were going to do backstage. And uh, and Hogan would turn to me and say, "All right, brother, one more time. How do you say your name?" And I'd say, uh, "It's Manganello." And he'd go, "Manganello, got it." And I go, "Whoa, whoa, 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 Manganello, Manganello. Okay, cool." And then uh, 20 minutes later, "All right, brother, one more time." <laughs> Manganello. Uh, so then, you know, fast forward to we're about to go out uh, in front of, you know, millions of people at home and tens of thousands of people at the Barclays Center in, in, uh, in Brooklyn. And Hulk's got the boa on and the sunglasses and the do-rag and we're waiting in the crow's nest to go out. And he turns to me and goes, one more time, brother. <laughs> Manganello. And he goes, got it. And uh, they play the Hulk Hogan music. He goes down, slaps hands, gets into the ring, and says, you know, I'd like to bring out a good friend of mine, the star of the new movie, Sabotage, my good friend, Joe Mangelio. <laughs> <laughs> well, you couldn't have expected anything else, right? Come on, man. Yeah. So I go into the ring, and I'm thinking in my mind the whole time I'm walking down, like, how do I make a bit out of this? Or how do I, hold on, brother, I got some, I got a bone to pick with you, Hogan. Yeah. Uh, but I can't, because we have to go into our script. And so I didn't get to say anything, and uh, it just kind of ate at me a little bit, and I uh, felt embarrassed. And then backstage, after we'd finished our thing, uh, Hogan was being interviewed, and uh, he cut the woman off interviewing him, grabbed the microphone, and said, listen, I don't care what anybody calls him from now on, because to me, brother, he's Joe Mania. And, uh... But that's the great get-out that Hulk Hogan has for anyone. Like, you just put Mania on the end of it. I forgive you. Like, yeah. I forgive you. Yeah. I'm Joe Mania. Like, we're, we're even. We're... Yeah. Tonight's guest stars for Monday Night Raw. 
the stars of the brand new film, Sabotage. Joe Magnioli and my good friend, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Let's give them a big warm welcome, brothers. <laughs> 